Welcome to the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence. Of course, I'm Nick. And I'm Thomas. And in this episode, we'll be bringing our series on the gospel to a close by answering the question, good news for whom? But before we dive into that question, let's talk about our beverages of choice. So who's brew for you, Nick? Well, the brew for me is some homebrew from a few guys at church. They wow. do their own stuff, and they made a uh, stout that they passed on to me. Uh, it's really mild, so it's kind of got that coffee bitterness, but it's not super cloying and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I can't tell you the name because they haven't patented yet, or, not, or patented it yet, and all that sort of stuff. But rest assured, it is clean, it is smooth, and I'm enjoying it quite a bit. I am very happy to be at a church that some people pass along to me their, uh, <laughs> their holy offerings. I uh, I got I'm a little jealous, and you have reached the uh, the level of like beer nerdhood 100. When you start brewing your own synergist brew, we're gonna have to. Hey, there you go. There's an idea. Uh, there we go. Yeah. Stay tuned. Synergist brew to be here in the future. Yeah, there we go. We'll go with that. <laughs> all right. So, what are you drinking? Uh, of course, you have to be drinking the holiest of all holy things, and you are drinking. I am drinking uh, Stone. It's called Delicious IPA. I don't know if they're trying to you know, suggest something, but it's not bad. It's a citrusy IPA with lemon drop and El Dorado hops. It's uh, fairly mm. mild, um, not terribly bitter, uh, pretty refreshing. Nice. And it's gluten-free, so it's actually a healthy-ish beer, all things considered, too. Yeah, you know, not too bad, not too bad. Healthy beer, you know, it's uh, better than soda, right? Better than sugar. <laughs> yeah. yeah, certainly, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, Nick, it wouldn't be an episode of The Synergist without an installment of... Really bad pastor joke. So what do you got? All right. Since it's the Christmas season, and of course a very Merry Christmas to all of our listeners and detractors, I won't show preference because I don't believe God does, we've got <laughs> three little jokes here, and so i got three for you, Thomas. All right, so what do you call a greedy elf? What? Elfish. Uh... Oh, it hurts so much. All right. Uh, why are Christmas trees so bad at sewing? Why? They always drop their needles. Ah, uh, okay. All right. The last one I think is actually kind of kind of cute and clever. All right, uh, knock knock. Who's there? Mary. Mary who? Merry Christmas. Oh, that's sweet. Merry yeah, it's Christmas. it's something like a little kid would say, and I I feel after drinking this homebrew, I feel kind of in that mind frame. So it's actually kind of nice. <laughs> well done, well done. All right, so mine. Um, I have to admit, I kind of made this one up on the spot, thinking about a joke. But um, keeping with our you know Wesleyan Arminian theme, how do we know that Santa is not a Calvinist? Ooh, I had four or five really mean things popping in my head, but I'll just go with what? Well, we know Santa's not a Calvinist, because if he did, he wouldn't have a naughty and nice list. He'd have one list that just says totally depraved. Damn. Okay. All the groans, all the groans. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so moving on to more serious territory, as if this podcast could ever be serious. We spent a lot of time this year kind of addressing the question... What is the gospel? It's kind of a central question a lot of people have. And we've seen that the gospel is about just far more than just forgiveness of sins and going to heaven when we die and all these sorts of things. We've rather seen that the gospel is all about Jesus as the true and rightful king and how that has implications on essentially every aspect of our lives. 
Exactly. And we've seen that this understanding of the gospel is consistent um, in the teachings of Jesus, uh, Jesus' own life and ministry, as well as the teachings of Paul. And so as we close out this little series on the gospel, we're asking the question, good news for whom? Uh, but really, what kind of question is that? Because isn't the gospel good news for everyone? Well, yes. B- but also no, obviously. Have you seen Twitter? No. Clearly no. Awesome. Uh, well, thanks for clearing that up. My this pleasure. has been another episode of the Synergist <laughs> Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence. Thanks for listening. Uh, but seriously, I, I mean, unpack that a little bit. It, it, what does that mean that the gospel is good news for everybody, but it's also not? Well, it's also one of those things where we are, of course, as Wesleyan Arminians, with or at least for me, a little bit of a Baptist streak. But the idea being that we believe God, of course, loves everybody and desires all people to come to repentance and to participate in the calling that God has gifted them to. But it's also uh, essentially the way that Jesus is, in the end, is good for everybody who gives allegiance to Jesus. But it sounds like there's a but coming. Well, there is a a but coming, uh, but the gospel doesn't always seem like good news to everyone. Ah, right, 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 right. Because until somebody admits they're a sinner in need of a savior, the gospel sounds like bad news, right? Yeah, because, you know, no one wants to go to hell, you know, obviously. (laughs) Exactly, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I guess there's some truth to that popular line. We are, of course, sinners and all that sort of stuff, but that's not usually the way it's presented in Scripture. I mean, think about it. With groups of people consistently responding positively to Jesus, like in ways that we just don't really see others, and which groups of people were consistently offended... And challenged by him, like, what kind of groups of people do we see just in the Gospels that are actually, like, responding to Jesus, whether positively or negatively or what have you? Like, can you think of any? Well, you know, off the top of my head, um, it was it's the tax collectors, the sinners, the poor, um, the sick, prostitutes, women. These are the basically the people, like, on the margins of society are the people who were sort of inherently drawn to Jesus. And it was, like, the religious professionals... Uh, as well as sort of the rich and the powerful who are most challenged and offended by him. Is that sort of what you're thinking? I think so. And you even have people who are rich and powerful responding to him positively, but as we think of the rich young ruler, not all positive, not an entirely positive response, but there is some sort of give and take as Jesus works on this. But more specifically, yes, it is entirely the people, the religious professionals, or we might say the elite. Mm-hmm. Uh And this matches up really perfectly, I think, with Jesus' own stated mission. So, for example, in Luke 4, 18-19, Jesus kind of launches his public ministry from a synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth by claiming a couple verses from Isaiah as his mission statement. And, quote, as I read, you know, the word of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor to proclaim release to the prisoners and to recover and recovery of sight to the blind and to liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Now, uh, listen to those categories that Mm -hmm. that Jesus mentions, poor, prisoner, blind, oppressed. Uh, I mean, it sounds to me like Jesus was a real Marxist, eh? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, at least that's what the Calvinists call me when I start talking about justice for those same groups of people. Cultural Marxism, cultural (laughs) Marxism. Sounds like it's just a good Christmas song right there. Which, which, what even is that, by the way? Never mind. I mean, as as someone who's read Marx, this is not, anyway, all right, I'll just move on. We'll move on. We'll we'll say that. All right. All right. And, and okay. So 
at least that's what the Calvinist, you know, okay, yeah. And we compare with that with what Jesus says in Matthew 11 and Luke 7. What they says is proof of his messianic mission or ministry when John sends messengers asking, quote, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? It's a nice little are you are who you say you are. And if not, boy, you're in a heap of trouble. Jesus <laughs> responds by saying, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And more specifically, if we look at the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this would have been, excuse me, the, the basic Bible of most uh, Jews during this time. It turns, if we look at this as the theological background of all these passages the, that we mentioned, it turns out Isaiah def, kind of defies all the interpretive categories for what God is calling us to do. For the language of anointing, for example, uh, the Lord has anointed me to do something. If we take that seriously, then this is kind of God's way of inaugurating the Great Commission, in some sense. It includes those who are, he, it includes healing for those who are crushed in heart. A lot of people say, you know, sad in heart, but it's, it's no, it's crushed in heart, who, are, who have been pushed and kind of pressed down. Interestingly, the word for forgiveness in Isaiah here also means something closer to being set free or liberated from uh, captivity. So even the notion of basic words that we Christians kind of assume a, a common meaning, like forgiveness, are given a, a different spin, or rather, I might just say, a more biblical context. Ooh, I like that. So in, in Jesus' own mission statement in Luke 4, he, he mm-hmm. identifies the poor, the prisoner, the, plot, the blind, the oppressed— uh, in defense of his messianic ministry to John, um, he identifies uh, the blind, the lame, the lepers, the deaf, the dead, um, the poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, let, let's compare those with the list uh, of categories that Jesus calls blessed in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Amen. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. See, he, had, he had Twitter back then. He had Twitter back then. <laughs> falsely on my account. There you go. Yeah, there, there we go. go. <laughs> <laughs> um, rejoice and be glad, he says, for your reward is great in heaven for the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, and then, of course, if we look at Luke's version of the same thing, you know, the Sermon on the Mount versus the Sermon on the Plain, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Luke makes those categories much more physically concrete. Instead mm-hmm. of the poor in spirit, he just says, blessed are the poor, right? Instead of those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, he just says, blessed are you who are hungry. Um, and not only that, but in, in Luke's version, G- Jesus even throws in some woes, Ooh. right? He says, woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort in Luke six twenty four, Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe uh, to you when everyone speaks well of you, you know, when you're popular, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Wow. And so over and over again. Tomlin's getting all of this stuff. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. All right. I just sang on the internet. Yeah, there we Um, go. That's that's not going to be a shift at all. We're not going to edit that out. No, we're not. Um, Over and over again, though, we see this, this theme of reversal. 
right? This idea that that things are going to be turned upside down in the kingdom of God. I mean, just think of the parable of of Lazarus and the beggar, right? The uh, you know, um, the the rich man goes down into you know what you know whatever Hades, hell or whatever, ish, yeah, Hades-ish. yeah. We won't exposit that, but but no. that reversal, right? The one who was rich in this life is punished, and the one who was poor in this life is exalted and comforted. Mm-hmm. Um, and we could go on with example after example after example in the New Testament alone of the lowly being lifted up and the exalted being brought low by the gospel. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and I think this biblical theme uh, arises far more than people may think. You know, if you just read these texts, and, you, and these are not the only texts, you could read, just reading the Gospel of Matthew, I'm going through it at church, uh, in a Bible study, we're seeing this all over the place, and it's causing us to think a lot. Um, and what's fascinating, I think, about all of this is very few of the early Christians were people of significant affluence or status. And so whatever, uh, oh yeah, go ahead, yeah. Well, I mean, exactly. I mean, that's, and Paul says that explicitly in his letter to the Corinthians, right? He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. I mean, that's not a very nice thing, but I guess no, it's, it's true, not. right? That's not exactly many of you... what I want to hear from people on the internet. You are not wise by human standards. <laughs> not many of you are influential. Not many of you were noble, were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world. Talking about the people he's writing to. God yep. chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. That, that, that great reversal again. Yep. And precisely. So anytime Paul or Mark or whoever the snickerdoodle wrote Hebrews, we're seeing a glimpse into the New Testament vision of the poor, the powerless, the blind, the sick, all of whom were marginalized by Rome or by one another, perhaps. And they're being spoken to and treated with honor and respect and kindness. And I think this reveals kind of a second aspect of the gospel as it relates to God's relationship to humanity. And that is the theme of judgment. Judgment. In what sense? All right. Well, and I, I don't mean judgment in necessarily the sense of going to hell. I think, you know, judgment is, of course, a much bigger topic. But in Romans 2, 15 through 16, Paul writes, They, that is Gentiles or, you know, pagans or however we translate that word, show the proof of the law written on their hearts and their consciences affirm it. Their conflicting thoughts will accuse them or even make a defense for them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the hidden truth about human beings through Christ Jesus. So more specifically, God is aware of the human race, both individually and corporately, and is taking note of about what we do. This applies to the church especially, and this is not to say that God is looking to squash us like a bug or anything. Rather, God cares about how we relate and respond and interact to one another as the body of Christ. And that includes responding with, we might say, wrath, however you want to define that, when we act in an oppressive or sinful way, especially as it relates to people we call brother and sister. No, no, I want to back up just a second. You said God is taking note of what we do. Don't you mean God is taking note of what we believe? Yes, because if we believe the right thing, we should be acting like it. But I mean, but, <laughs> I'm playing with but, you. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But, 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 but God doesn't really care what we do, right? He just cares what we believe. Right? No, that, no, that's... no. You, you can vote for heathens on 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 November sixth or fourth and go on living your good life and not care anything about what you're doing. <laughs> well, I'm serious. Like it's like you look at this. It's like God. The the all of the ethical imperatives in the New Testament are not concerned with, and you have to believe the right thing. It's like because God has loved you. Here's what God is like. Here's doctrine, and here's how you live your life. The ethical commands and the doctrinal commands in the New Testament, in my eyes at least, are not separated. And so when you separate them by saying this is doctrine, this matters more than ethics, 
ethics and doctrine are so intertwined, at least in Paul's thought, that if you pull them apart, you don't have either one. You have, well, your own narcissism and sinfulness, and you're not going to live the way God wants you to live. <laughs> Preach. Uh, so, all right, sorry, that was a bit of a tangent. No, no, uh, you, you, you said You said that, that God cares how we relate to one another. Um, mm-hmm. and, and Paul even includes himself in this sort of thing, doesn't he? Yeah, well, absolutely. In Ephesians 3, 8, and yes, of call, of course, Paul wrote Hebrews, or rather Ephesians. He didn't write Hebrews. He didn't write Hebrews. He wrote Ephesians. Uh, <laughs> he says, uh, God gave his favor to me, the least of all God's people, to preach the gospel about the immeasurable riches of Christ to the Gentiles or the pagans. There's that word again. And Paul's kind of awareness of his own relationship with God causes him to kind of eschew the easy categories of us and them, like we see in the Sermon on the Mount and in the teachings of Jesus. Rather, the riches of God's favor to Paul causes Paul to respond with joy and delight at unveiling the goodness of God to people who are estranged from God. And we see that, of course, excuse me, in Ephesians 2, 11 and following. But Paul is not just unaware of his own place in the world. Actually, you... Bringing Paul up, right, as you are wont to do as a as a budding Paul scholar. Trying to, um, yeah. But I think Paul himself is actually a really great example of the way that the gospel uniquely challenges the powerful, right? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, Paul was a man of pedigree. He was a man of means. He was a man of status and reputation and privilege and power. He wasn't the kind of person that was initially attracted to Jesus and the gospel the way that, say, the tax collectors and the sinners were. As a matter of fact, he was precisely the kind of person that opposed Jesus and the gospel and did so violently mm-hmm. until he found himself facing Jesus uh, in a moment of judgment of sorts, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Paul's own recognition of such things is just so clear in Philippians 3, 5 to, 8, 5 to 7. Quote, I was circumcised, and this is his kind of boast, so to speak. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am of the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That's, you know, a good chest thump right there. With respect to observing the law, I'm a Pharisee. With respect to devotion to the faith, I harass the church. With respect to righteousness under the law, I am blameless. These things were my assets, but I wrote them off as a loss for the sake of Christ. And Paul, Paul's actually being a little more naughty here with what he says. Scubalon, <laughs> the Greek word, is kind of a, a dirty word, but we won't talk much about that because John Piper might be listening. He's one of our biggest fans, obviously. Yeah, you know, we, we don't want to offend him or anything. Yeah, all, all things to all people, babe. <laughs> but I mean, just to sharpen the point here, right? Yeah. The gospel didn't sound like good news to Paul, a man of status and privilege, until he reoriented himself to the seemingly upside down, which which we know is really right side up economy of the kingdom of God. Just like it didn't sound like good news to the religious leaders in Jesus' day or to the rich young ruler who approached Jesus asking what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. Uh, and, and so what we see is, is things that like like power and prestige and wealth and status, things that are typically symbols of success in the kingdoms of the world, are actually presented as obstacles to the kingdoms of God. Uh Things that must be surrendered and submitted to the rule of God. Boom. <laughs> so one of the things that I, I, I like to do when I preach is ask the question, so what? In other words, what the heck is the point of all of this? How does the fact that the gospel is good news primarily for the downtrodden and marginalized, how, how does that actually apply to us or to our listeners? Oh, yes. <laughs> Application. 
So, I mean, it seems pretty clear to me, right? There's no actual application here. This is this is just purely informational. It's just letting us know that even though the poor and the marginalized are pretty much screwed now, they'll have it good in heaven, right? That's the... Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, you suffer now so you can have a good time in heaven. That's obviously what the gospel is. Right, right. No, 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 no. No? No. Uh, how do you figure? Well, remember that little prayer Jesus taught his disciples? Yeah, the Lord's Prayer. Sure. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us Stop this right there. Day. Stop right there. Say that last part again. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Ding. There it is. See, even though we know that we'll never perfectly achieve the final vision of, we might say, the new Jerusalem or the new creation on this side of Christ's return, we've been called to strive towards that goal. The, the Christian faith is telic. <laughs> We're looking towards the end of... of uh, Hold on. The Christian faith is what? Telic. It has a... a telic? Has, yeah, it has a, has, has a telos toward it. It has something that it's looking toward, a singular point, an end goal. You know, like... You know, think of football player, you know, the running back, he's in the end zone, and his only goal, his telic, or his telos, is to get to the other side of the field, and that's all he's got to do. And Folks, that... hold on, hold on. Nick just made a football reference on the synergist. I'm a pastor, you kind of have to just make, like, sports analogies, otherwise a lot of people don't get it. And I can't <laughs> use a hockey one, because no one will understand what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> what the heck, what the heck are you talking about, Nick? Oh, no, hell's, uh, what the Hades I'm talking about, there we go, what the Hades I'm talking about. <laughs> All right, sorry, I, I keep interrupting you. No, that's fine. No, that's fine. Make your point. Make your point. Yeah, we, we've basically been called to strive towards that goal and to reflect the vision of heaven here and now as much as we are able, of course, to do so. Um, I would argue that includes nonviolent means as, as uh, someone who's a Wesleyan Baptist and adheres to that sort of idea. And this is inspired... Uh, this is what inspired the first Christians to sell their possessions and to share with each other, to cross or even break social, cultural, and ethnic boundaries, uh, to radically reorientate their lives on earth in anticipation and in hope of the gospel's vision of heaven, and that included social justice, we might say. Which we talked about in our last episode. We did. Um, so, in, in other words... When people like you and me and the people who listen to our podcast, since the very fact that we're doing a, a podcast um, indicates that we're, we're all probably on the powerful <laughs> or privileged side of things. Uh, when we come to realize that God sides with the oppressed and the marginalized, as he did in the Old Testament, as he does in the ministry of Jesus in the New Testament, that, that we, we realize that we too have an obligation to work to bring about God's justice for those who are less privileged and advantaged than we are here and now, right? Precisely. It, it becomes sort of like sort of gospel show and tell. We, we tell people about the gospel, absolutely. We assert that Jesus is Lord, that he is the resurrected Messiah, that he is at God's right hand, that he is loving and he's called us to participate in all these sorts of things. But we also show people, we give them a little glimpse of heaven on earth, just like Jesus, the apostles, and the early Christians, every time they concretely express love for people in need. And we might say Christian theology without working hands or without a desire to get your hands dirty or put your skin in the game for other people is simply an exercise in narcissism. Christian theology at its core is about God has gifted you with hands to go and do the things of the kingdom of God. And that includes loving your neighbor as yourself and not doing harm to your neighbor, as you would obviously not want done to yourself. 
man, so good, so good. So, so as we wrap up this series on the gospel, let's recap. We've seen uh, so far that, that the gospel is more than just forgiveness of sins. It, it's more than just going to heaven when we die. But that the gospel is the announcement, really, that Jesus is the true and rightful Lord of all who has begun the task of setting the world to rights. And in this episode, we've seen that this is particularly good news for those who are on the outside, those who are on the margins. But it's also good news for everyone who's willing to submit and surrender their power and privilege to the Lordship of Jesus and join him in his church and working to accomplish his will on earth as it is in heaven until he returns and ties us all up in a bow. Or as St. Peter said, a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells or makes its place or home known to us. And in this Advent season, I'm uh, reminded of the Reverend, uh, yes, women can and should be reverends, the Reverend Fleming Rutledge and her new book on Advent, which I was privileged to read a little bit of. It was just, it's stellar. She writes, quote, the calling of the church is to place itself where God is already at work. The church lives, therefore, without fear in faith that the cosmic change of regime has already been accomplished. And that's a good amen that's right good. there. That's amen, a good amen. amen. That's a good amen. Well, with that, we officially bring the Synergists Season 1 to a close, to an end. But stay tuned because uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to come out with a special Synergists Christmas episode. We're going to look over the past year. We're going to anticipate some of the things that we're looking forward to in Season 2. And we're going to chat a little bit about all things Christmas. So stay tuned for that in a couple of weeks. And included in that is the question, what is the best Christmas movie of all time? And you will, of course, have to wait and see what Thomas and I say about this. Die Hard. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, no, I'm going to. No, 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 no. We'll, and we'll, we'll, we'll put that off. He, he didn't say Die Hard. He said The Grinch, obviously, the Jim Carrey one. Uh, but as always, we're just immensely grateful to all of our litner, listeners and especially to our patrons who've helped just kind of underwrite the cost of production. Uh, we're just we're just so blessed to have people just reaching out and talking to us and retweeting us and just just hanging out and just living the life with us. It's it's really just kind of a wonderful thing. And if you like what you hear here and you're able, of course, only if you're able, you can support us on Patreon. Patreon. If you're not in a position to do that, of course, I understand and Thomas understands. But if you still want to help kind of spread the word of this podcast, we appreciate any likes or shares or retweets or five-star reviews that you're able to give honestly and freely on iTunes. We're up to, I think it's last I checked a few minutes ago, we're up to 22 reviews on iTunes, which is not too bad. That puts us several hundred behind John Piper and Doctrine and Devotion. So, you know, bits and pieces <laughs> at a time. Uh, and we see nothing but the sky being the limit here. We're, we're just so blessed to have all of you just kind of working with us on this. And this has been another episode of the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence, of course, and only. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.